Good afternoon, good evening, good morning. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I go by the name of RW, and this is Movie Podcast. I'm going to go ahead and take another sip of this coffee. So today I'm going to be talking about a documentary film called My Name is Albert Eiler. It is a docu-bio of the late American jazz saxophonist Albert Eiler. released in 2007 by Casper uh, Collins, a patron of the arts, obviously a fan of jazz. He also made a documentary about Lee Morgan years later. I'm definitely a I'm definitely a fan of his films, but uh, for the most part, on uh, today I'm going to speak about the life of uh, the film subject, Albert Eiler. He's uh, his music has fascinated me for quite a while now, and he, given given the uh, avant garde kind of iconoclast nature of his saxophone playing and his compositions, combined with the uh, the serious tumult of his personal life there's not too many uh, there's not too many documents regarding this guy's uh, life and career what we're left with is uh, a handful of very fascinating uh, studio recordings and live recordings of a uh, series of bands that he played with between 1963 and 1970, the year of his death. He he didn't necessarily belong to any particular scene. His music was very much... He led the vanguard of his own kind of music. It was very different from even the uh from his contemporary free jazz players at the time when the style of music was uh emerging through through the 1960s and if you're interested in this kind of music uh, uh other names that might basically just start with John Coltrane uh listen to the records he produced at the end of his life and you know look up the recordings and the personnel on those recordings and kind of go from there it's very fascinating music very challenging uh, music it's can it can be it's not very palatable 
It can oftentimes feel like an affront to the senses. But for me, something about this music is, since I discovered it in college, is something that's con just connected with me in a way I can't, in a way not a lot of other music does. Like, I can't explain it. Like, you know, obviously I love all types of music and, you know, I, 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 you know, I love pop music and hip hop and all that. That's more, that's, that, that's, that's more of a, that's a little more in tune with my senses. But this music, whenever I see a group of musicians, especially in a acoustic ensemble, play in this style it just it just brings a smile to my face i don't know how else to it's just something about the chaos of it the freedom the spontaneity you just the fact that you can just get up there and you don't have to give a fuck you can just play how you feel and i think albert eiler was one of the first players to truly understand this he says it multiple times in these interviews captured in this documentary that he was just playing how he felt. It was that simple. And there was obviously... There was obviously probably a lot of trauma that went behind his... Uh, his feelings. But also a certain loving spiritual force behind it. You listen to the guy talk, he was so soft-spoken. And he had a kind of innocence, an almost like childlike innocence. But in any case, I think it's easy to be misunderstood about this guy's music, especially if you just listen to it off the without having any uh, preconceptions about it. I'd say if you are interested in uh, looking into Albert Eiler's music and you haven't listened to a lot of uh, freeform jazz or even jazz in general, uh, the recordings I'd probably look to is uh, Love Cry, an album he produced with uh, one of his later bands towards the end of his life. I, I think that's probably his most accessible recording. But probably to hear him in his, uh, probably to hear the most pure form of his expression, you'd probably want to listen to uh, Spiritual Unity, his first recording from 63 with his first trio. It's a very fascinating document. And I would also definitely, I would highly recommend this movie. I think it's very, it's very difficult. I don't know nothing about making movies. I can only imagine for making a documentary that's not only a documentary, but a bio, a biography of a long deceased person's life. It can be very, it can probably be very difficult to find a level of objectivity sincerity and uh, focus with the lack of intent like I don't think that uh, 
I don't think that Casper Collins was attempting to do attempting to anything political or I don't think I don't feel like he had his own agenda. I feel like he really just wanted to understand this man's life. And I got to tell you it's it's you know, watching this for a second time, it's 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 crushing cuz this man's life it was a tragedy. Now the primary uh outside of uh the curated footage and uh recordings uh in this film which consists of uh basically stock footage of uh the cities that uh, Eiler resided in during his life like Stockholm, New York, Cleveland, Ohio where he was born. Uh among the other curated footage is uh, uh, these very interesting uh, what's the what's the word uh, portrait shots of Albert Eiler and his trio Sonny Murray and uh, Gary Peacock from the early '60s that were recorded by Michael Snow, the Canadian artist and musician. And then uh, two examples of footage, two two documented uh, recordings, film film records of Eiler performing. One in '65 for the BBC, and one in the '69-1970 uh, uh, when he was playing with a more when he was playing with his like final band, his kind of more rock blues band. And these are the only two. That's the only footage of him playing a saxophone. It's very, like seriously, like this guy, not a lot of, there's just not a lot of documents of his existence and seeing him, actually seeing him uh, move and seeing his, seeing him play a saxophone, he had such a forceful uh, sound. Like there's a force behind his playing. Like there's nobody just I he was he was he was innovative in the sense that he played in a way nobody played the horn like at that time he screamed through a saxophone like it's that's just some crazy shit to be like that screaming into a saxophone in the 60s based there's no other way to say it like this guy was this guy was crazy he was on some shit And he made something truly, he made music that was, it was genuinely beautiful, but it was also extremely haunting. I don't think, I think through his own, you know, I think through his own obsession, I think he failed to see the chaos that he was sort of surrounding. Maybe, I, maybe, maybe not. I don't, I didn't know the guy. <laughs> but. Okay, so the the outside of the curated footage and the the uh, the old the old collected interviews and those uh, performance recordings, uh, Collins interviewed uh, people that were close to Eiler, namely his father, who was still alive by the time he made these uh, recordings in the early two thousands, and 
Albert Eiler's brother, Donald Eiler. And he's definitely the most fascinating. He's one of the more fascinating characters in this in this uh, life story. And along with that, they interviewed. Uh, he interviewed uh, several of Eiler's girlfriends, and uh, his other musical partners: Sonny Murray, uh, Gary Peacock, a uh, Swedish uh, a Swedish musician who I didn't they, I didn't remember the name of him and. Uh, So that's what that's the basis of what's around this film. I'll, I'm now I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of give a little brief overview of Albert Eiler's biography so I can get into my feelings about uh, the film and the music just for context. So uh, Albert he was born in Cleveland, Ohio, 1936. Uh, to a uh, he was a, a black American with one brother and uh, born to a working class family. His father was a uh, musician, a church musician, and given what I, and what I gathered from the film is he had a uh, sort of overbearing mother in his life that seemed to, uh, that seemed to, uh, drive a lot of his actions and his uh, apparent attitudes in his music and uh, he was the oldest child with one younger brother uh, he was a uh, he was a uh, musically gifted played in school marching bands and all that was shown to be very, um, from a young age, according to his uh, high school girlfriend and later mother of his child, very, just very into playing his saxophone. After, uh, after finishing high school, he joined the military Replayed in a, uh, replayed in uh, their band. I think it was. I think it was. Uh, I can't. Doesn't say if it was the army. Yes, the army. After finishing his uh, time there, this is the 1950s. At this point, he decides to move to Sweden to pursue a career in music and. There's some very interesting uh, interviews with uh, a girlfriend and a musician who he was with at the time and another uh, musician that played with him because it was showing that while he was in Stockholm at this time, he played in a sort of like a Calypso, R&B, just a, like a restaurant band, just like, you know, socializing music. But according to according to the musicians, they said that he he uh, he sort of had a stubbornness in his playing. Like he wouldn't he just wouldn't play straight melodies. He just he would he would uh, just break into his uh, free improvisational style. 
there was something that was just always in him. And I don't know. I just think that's great. It's just he he was doing his own thing. He was an iconoclast. He he had something he had something in him that he knew how to express with his horn and it just he just knew it had to be heard. I don't know what the psychological thing is there, but I think that's just fucking brilliant. And uh, through the interview with the drummer Sonny Murray, who uh, I would definitely recommend listening to his music. Out of all the people mentioned in this film, I I I, I do believe he is uh, one of the great American drummers of jazz. Another just a uh, steadfast individualist and just a straight shooter with a crazy, crazy batshit insane style, especially with the cymbal playing. And, you know, like many of these musicians from this time just sort of lost to the lost to the nonstop river of music. But I think his music was I think his I think his playing was really, really interesting. And also you see he seemed he, he definitely like he his his interviews uh, give a lot of a lot of levity to the story because it is a really sad story hearing about this guy's life so okay so Sonny Sonny Murray talks about meeting Eiler when he was in when he was when he was coming through Sweden touring with Cecil Taylor's band the uh piano player essentially essentially the uh kind of one of the first one of the first uh basically one of the first recognizable uh free jazz players from America and uh, he talks about inviting Eiler onto the bandstand and yeah he's off to the races uh, so by this time in the early 60s Eiler decides to return to the United States where he settles in New York while the while the uh, free jazz movement is sort of just beginning with, you know, the performances of uh, Cecil Taylor and Ornette Coleman. And, uh, yeah, and Eiler, he forms a trio with Sonny Murray and Gary Peacock. They begin performing, and he records, uh, and he starts recording on this independent label called ESP Disc. I'd also recommend listening to ESP disc recordings from this period, the early 60s, some very, very fascinating music. There's conflicting stories as to uh, the legitimacy of this label. Like, it, 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 se- it seems to me like the uh, its, its owner didn't really pay his musicians, but I mean, you know, I look at it like it's an independent label in the 60s producing really heavy avant-garde music. I can't imagine too many people are going to be buying this stuff. Like it's 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 kind of it's kind of it's it's kind of just it's it seems like this is like the best that they that artist working in this music had in terms of getting it recorded. Like I think there's a Sun Ra quote 
uh, or uh, one of his bandmates said to him, we can't, why are we going to record with this guy if he doesn't even pay us? And Sun Ra responded, who else is going to record it? So it's just kind of one of those, uh, it was just kind of a devil dance that seems like these musicians had to had to work with. It's I like it's a miracle any of this music got made. Like I still I can't wrap my mind my mind around it. Like just given what was popular in the early '60s, what people's like tastes were accustomed to, even for jazz musicians, just coming out of bebop. This is so like some of this music is so so out there compared to what came before it it's like this there's something i don't know there's something it's something there's definitely something spiritual to it something almost dark like i would argue that the recordings from that trio with uh eiler peacock and murray I'd, I'd argue some of the some of the things they were playing was almost alchemical Like nothing like that will ever, sounds like that will never come out of a group of people in that way again. Like you can see people perform this kind of music, but nothing with that, with that passion and with that kind of a, with that sympathy to each other's playing. Because like, I don't know, it's like you just... And you you can just see that through their faces, through the the shots that Michael Snow got of them. It's just you 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 look at Eiler with his with his just wide eyes and his sort of half smile, and Gary Peacock, who was described as a uh, fasting a lot during the time of these of uh, during the times of this of uh, these recordings. I think there's even I think a. Uh, Sonny Murray even said that he would occasionally like pass out from he would like pass out on the bandstand and Sonny Murray himself who would like I think the dude was like missing like four fingers and was still fucking drumming like there's just this that's just I can't yeah there'll never be a band like that there was something there's there was it was there was something magical about that I guess but that brings me back to what I was saying I don't think Eiler understood the crazy juju magic he was he was dealing with. I think he was just running purely on instincts. He just wanted to play music. This was the music he was playing. And he was just and he was just fucking going for it. And obvious okay, so so he started out, he's made records, and he and he's performing but obviously he's living in essentially poverty he can't <clears throat> he's not you know like there's making music is, doesn't pay the bills period like I can't imagine anybody working in this music was wasn't struggling for it at this time you can hear it in the music There's a pain to it. But there's a love to it. Because why else would they make it? 
why else would they suffer for it? They knew that they had they, they there was something there's something in this dude. There's something in this dude that knew he had to he had to do this. So in the mid sixties, he uh he begins to put together um, a, a new band. He and uh, along with that, he also uh, he uh, his girlfriend transplants to New York, and they have a child together. And she eventually leaves back to Ohio with with the child. And Albert encourages during this time he encourages his brother to uh, learn to play the trumpet and relocate to New York to be a part of his band. And and through this they make several uh, there's several pretty interesting uh, studio recordings and live recordings from this period with uh, I believe he played with the drummer Milford Graves who I think gave a very like uh, I think I think he had a very propulsive. His sound was his sound was a lot more. Uh, it seemed to be a lot more propulsive in these recordings. Namely, uh, I want to I want to say he played on Bells, which is a live recording, and then uh, Love Cry, one of the first Impulse records. But I'm also I'm all, but I'm I'm getting to to him myself. I mean, the music speaks for itself. I don't know what to say about the music but it seems like this is a sort of like this is a rough time in Eiler's life because part of what contributes to the tragedy of him is uh, is is his his commitment to his family like it showed through through the interviews with him with Donald Eiler himself that he had severe mental problems mental problems that he described as being psychotic but it seemed more uh, to be like sort of schizophrenia and it was also one person hinted at that he was uh, using drugs, cocaine uh, and when you know they were not making any money So, so all of this had to weigh on the guy's head. Like it had to, it had to have been. It, it was, it was, it was probably pretty rough. And along with that, like he described, like returning to Ohio and speaking with his mother, and his mother saying, "I don't recognize you as my son." Like she was obviously dissatisfied in the path that he had chosen as a musician, and she was also upset with him for uh, for leading his brother into that life.
but and it's just it's so strange like you listen to the interviews with him there's one particular interview they frequently uh cut to which is recorded later in his life and it seemed to be recorded outside you can hear like bugs chirping in the background and he speaks so calmly and uh it's almost like he was unfazed by the chaos of his external world because he had such an amount of inner peace. But maybe he was just delusional. And also maybe it was his obsession driving it. Like he, he, he knew that he understood that what he was doing was different. And it was something that people like he, he's, they, one quote he has is that uh, is that he says this is all that's left for musicians to play and I'd agree with that I think that the freeform jazz style I think that that's sort of like that's the final stick in the sand for acoustic jazz like I think that the free improvisation that's as far as you can take it as far as these people could have taken it people obviously they kept you know the more like the hard bop blue note blue note uh artists they obviously like people kept doing people still play in that style but in terms of creative expression and song form and just the nature of improvised music i think for, for i think for the jazz era that was that was the, that was it I think he knew this. He said he said that his music was the new blues. One other quote I have written down here is uh, something that he said to a. It's it's something that was uh, quoted uh, through another musician. He said that he said, "Don't think about tempo. Play how you feel." And then he would later say, all I could feel is what I played. Like feeling is the important, that seems to be the current through, uh, through the energy of his music. He's playing off a of feeling. And you know, and keep in mind he's playing what he feels and he's fucking screaming through his saxophone. So, you know. This dude was tortured. Then in many ways, maybe this is a projection of ego. You know, his unwillingness to uh, to play uh, in a straightforward style with the uh, restaurant band. His inability to read the room and play his part. He had to he had to play he had to play loud he had to play free you know i just i don't know it's it's 
it's just strange his his presence as a musician it seemed to be just a fucking bizarre anomaly like albert eiler was he was essentially the overman of jazz you know he had a sound power so powerful you couldn't ignore it but you'd either but if you heard it even today if you hear it you either love it or hate it it just splits you right in half and there's not a lot of music that does that Something else that I liked about this film, uh, uh, about Collins' interviews with the uh, with people, was for the musicians like Sonny Murray, Gary Peacock, and uh, the Swedish guy. They he had them listen to recordings that they made with Albert through headphones, and he filmed their reactions. And like the way you see these guys' head move. And the the sort of like subtle restrained smiles that they elicit that's at least for me that's how I feel when I listen to this kind of music it just it just it just rock it it, it, it rocks you it takes you someplace and it might not be a good place but you really see him you really see him going through it Like, there's a lot about this kind of music I don't think we understand. But also, I think, at least in the case of Albert Eiler's music, there was a lot of simplicity to it that was neither understated nor overstated. Like, I really don't think this guy... Like, I know I just said that, like, it's like he his ego might have been present in his performance. But I think the ideas for his compositions, I think they came from a place of real purity. Because, because uh, it's it's sort of because the comp because a, a lot of his compositions sound like they sound to be in the style of a march. Like the truth is marching in, and that probably comes from his uh, his history as a uh, as a you know as a march as playing playing and playing in a marching band. And some and several of his songs, like Love Cry, sound more like a gospel hymn. Obviously crediting to his spirituality and him growing up in the church. And then what's left in between, often in a very brilliant transition, is these uh, passages of free improvisation that he would roar into with his band. And and uh, Collins, during during one scene, he perfectly illustrates this contrast of ideas by playing a uh, an Eiler song where in the uh, 
sort of him like melodic section it shows shots of a uh, of a marching band and then when there's the uh, when the band cuts into improvising into the group improvisation he shows uh, he shows footage of uh, uh, these police attacks on uh, black American civil rights protesters uh, from from the early sixties. Just just to kind of just to, just to give a, uh, a what do you call it? just to, just to show some per perspective on the times that he was living in and making this music in. And I think that was necessary. I, I, like Albert Eiler wasn't his music didn't really appear to be political, but but he was he was an Amer a, a black American artist creating the primary bulk of his output through this through the through the sixties, which was. It was probably it was probably rough, but I don't know about I don't know about nothing. All I know is I watched this movie and and I listened to the I listened to some of his some some recordings of him. And it just, I don't know, it just, it made me think about my own life. You know, it made me think about, it made me think about my own life, my relationship with my parents and my younger brother. So the most uh, the most interesting part of and maybe in a very fucked up dark way the most triumphant point of Albert Eiler's career comes when he uh, him and his band with his brother uh, perform at the funeral of John Coltrane. Coltrane died. He dies in sixty seven. And he requested that uh, there be two performances at his funeral, and that is uh, Ornette Coleman's band and Albert Eiler's band. And there's a there's there's there there is a recording of at least one of the songs that he performed at the funeral, and it's not the the recording quality. It, it isn't the best. But you get the idea, and it's really it's really something else, especially during during like one of his during his soloing, like you can really hear him screaming through his horn like it's not not just not just in a in a way different than 
how it sounds to the other ones, it sounds like he's actually uh, like opening his mouth off of off of the mouthpiece, which is uh, it's raw, and it's a technique that I I don't hear a lot of other players use, and at least in in my in my listening journey, I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that a lot, but it's raw. It's Coltrane's death marked a real shift for uh, the avant-garde jazz scene, namely because he really like he he brought a name to it when he uh, when he moved in that direction of that style. But it was cut very short because of his death. And uh, for for Eiler's case, uh, after his death, he was signed to uh, Impulse Records, which was Coltrane's label. And you know, in the in the interview with him, it's you can it feels like this uh, gave him a sense of relief. But he obviously still had the same. He still had the same troubles going on, namely his relationship with his brother. And at this time, also he uh, he was in a relationship with a uh, a woman named Mary Parks, who was kind of his like a. Uh, kind of his manager and uh, creative partner. And uh, most people that were interviewed and asked about her, they claim that she kind of uh, kind of isolated him from people in his life and maybe that was true but it's more like I feel like it's more likely that he was isolating himself I mean the man was obviously depressed and the music that he released uh, through impulse the first few records seem to be more true to uh, the sound that he was working on namely love cry which is a fantastic album and uh, but then after that, this seems to be there's a more he's playing with a newer band with a, an electric bass player and he's singing and playing bagpipes and it's kind of more like he's playing more let's it's 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 got more like rock and it's it's like kind of like rock influence of that current rock music and whatever that current sound from the '60s. I think he was. It, 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 it seems like he was kind of pushed into making more contemporary sounding music by the label which wanted to sell records and I don't know the music the music's okay so you gotta take it for what it is and I it's not it's not something I'd, I definitely if you want to listen to his music probably listen to the early stuff but it's still it's still fascinating to hear what he was making at the end of his life. But even then, it was pretty... 
it was pretty unsuccessful and he was it didn't it didn't it didn't sell and so he was dropped from the from the label one reporter well like a journalist that they talked to who interviewed him towards the end of his life claimed that uh he was uh staring into the sun kind of he was doing like a sun worship type shit Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I feel like that's pretty accepted nowadays. I see motherfuckers looking into the sun just like on the streets today. And there's uh and there's uh there's footage of him playing like one of his last final concerts in nineteen seventy. He's wearing a he's wearing a wide brimmed hat and a kind of like orange kind of floral shirt and he's on stage with his uh, girlfriend and he's singing. There's footage of him singing a song where the uh, the refrain is got the women, women, women. He also, it, it, it seemed to me through the interview, it seemed that he had a reputation of being uh, kind of a womanizer. You know, it, it definitely, he de- it definitely, there seemed to be a, uh, like, he was obviously, his character was bursting with energy. If he couldn't, like, hear that from the music. So I can only, so I, I could, I could, I could see that. But yeah, so at this point, he's 34. He's got new clothes, but the same problems. He's not making any money. He's got a girlfriend who's isolating him from his mother and brother who he feels probably a pretty strong sense of guilt towards. For the way they've treated him and how he's treated them. That kind of thing. And as for one of the last encounters he has with his with his brother Donald, he states that they were pretty argumentative. And he has this insane quote where he says, We would speak to each other, but we didn't hear each other. We were screaming at each other like the music. And most uh, the inter- the interviewees all kind of describe uh, Donald Eiler essentially having a uh, psychotic break, ending in him uh, destroying his trumpet. And at the time of the interview in two thousand one, Casper Collins is making this movie. Donald Eiler is uh, medicated in and out of uh, mental hospitals, that kind of thing. And all this leads to the, to Albert Eiler's uh, 
his unfortunate decision to commit suicide by uh, by uh, jumping off a ferry, drowning in the ocean. You know, I look at this man's life and I see, I see an honest to God tragedy. I see an Oedipal story. I see a man who strived to do great things and express something from within himself. And through his journey, he discovered something wholly tragic about his life, about his family, his mother and father. So maybe he tried to blind himself. And most of the interviewees attested that he felt in some ways guilty about his mother and his brother. And so he just did what he, so he killed himself. And what we're left with is, what we're left with is the music that he created. A few pictures of him in uh, some leather suits. And two examples of him performing in front of a camera with a uh, you know you watch people who were who play uh, the saxophone or the trumpet and you know a lot of times it contorts your face and the way the way his face shifted with the air flowing through flowing through him I've never seen anything like it it's haunting there's no other way to There's no other way to describe it. So yeah, that's uh, that's the life of Albert Eiler that I that I gathered from my research and watching this film. It is a uh, it might be the most sad motherfucking documentary. Well, probably not. I'm, you know, I mean like. Showa documentaries about the Holocaust, a lot more people. But this is a real, this really speaks to the psychology of an individual and the psychology of an artist. And it's a motherfucker. It shows, it shows, it doesn't just show, it's not just a biography. It, it shows things about his life. It shows you between the lines of his life story and it's uh it's a good movie it's very well edited it's tasteful it's respectful to the man's career his accomplishments and his legacy and it's got like the last scene of this movie that was filmed by collins is footage of him with albert eiler's father Edward Eiler in 2001 
30 years after the man's death, after his son's death, driving to uh, the cemetery in Ohio when he's buried. And he's, and he's, uh, you know, it's footage of him wandering around trying to find the grave. And it only, it seems to hint at the amount of pain he felt not even knowing where his son's grave was. And then while walking around, he runs, he bumps into a friend of Albert's who walks into the grave. And that's, um, and that's cinema. That is what, to anybody who's trying to make a documentary, make something like that. Show something real. Capture life. Because... Because you could die. So yeah, I think this is a this is an exquisite documentary. A short watch, 80 minutes, but it packs a punch. And there's definitely something there's definitely something to take away from it. Whether or not you're a fan of uh, music like this or not. It captures a uh, captures an electrifying figure in American music. And and it shares a tragic story. Now, I will say, as for the, uh, it's 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 hard to it's 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 a little it's a little difficult to watch. I I I don't know if there's a DVD release of this. I I first watched this. Uh, when uh, somebody uploaded it to YouTube and to watch it this time I had to get it off of a sort of like a, like a Chinese uh, bootleg streaming website and I watched it on my phone and I couldn't send it into full screen so I had to watch with all the pink graphics around it and uh, there weren't any subtitles available for the scenes with the uh, the Swedish speaking interviewees, so that was a little lost to translation. But you, you could you, you you could tell you could tell by their by their frowns how 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 they felt. It's very yeah, it's it yeah, it serious business. So that's my thoughts on. My name is Albert Eiler.
Uh, I'd like to share just two quick kind of anecdotes. Person. So when I was in college, I went to a college in a really small town in uh, northern Missouri, like kind of out in the country. And, you know, I was listening to a lot of music in my free time, just trying to discover as much stuff as I could. And that eventually led me to free jazz and discovering Albert Eiler. And I'll never forget the first time I listened to Spiritual Unity. I was I was driving on some uh, gravel roads in this back country, and it was kind of close to an airport. And there was, this is probably in the middle of the song Wizards, which is on there, which is a very frenetic, very spontaneous uh, recording. I remember this uh, this uh, single man helicopter sort of coming up because we were close to an airport and I couldn't tell if it was landing or if it was taking off, but I just remember just going like 60 on this gravel road and just seeing this helicopter just kind of like hover. It like hovered over me. I don't, I don't know what it was doing. And I don't know, I just, I, I just felt something, something ominous. And it was gray outside. It was like not raining, not really warm. I think this was in the spring and it was just gray. It was just a, I don't know, it was strange, but it was wonderful. I'll never forget that. And then the second thing is a few years after that, uh, I had a very lucid dream where I saw Albert Eiler. And, you know, it was a dream, so it's all just in my head, subconscious, all that stuff. But what happened in the dream is I was perceiving a place with people, an amusement park, what I ascertained to be a Silver Dollar City, uh, this uh, amusement park in Missouri. And Albert Eiler was there, sort of uh, like street performing. And I remember that he had, uh, he had his hair in braids and he was wearing a kilt, which I probably associated from seeing a photo of him playing bagpipes. And, you know, I listen to a lot of music. I go out to see music as often as I can. And I don't think I've ever heard anything as loud as the way he played that saxophone in that dream. If you've made it this far, I want to thank you very much for listening. I do enjoy spending my time speaking to you about these films. If you enjoy these reviews, stay tuned for more.
I got some great films on deck for the next few reviews, and I'm going to be getting consistent, uploading weekly, probably, hopefully coming out on Mondays. And that's all I got to say for Movie Podcasts. This is RW signing off. Thank you for listening.